the Blitz had begun. As many as 350 German bombers would fill the skies at night, accompanied by over 600 fighters. The air raid sirens would go off. And then you would hear in the distance the anti-aircraft guns, soon followed by the roar of planes. The bombs, equipped with whistles to intimidate, would scream as they fell, and you could hear them coming. And if you were not already sheltered, you had to hope they didn't fall near you, for it was too late to get cover. Once you heard the whistle, the bombs fell too fast. And then there was the thud and the boom and the explosion, followed by, as Ernie Pyle described it, the crump, crump, crump of buildings falling apart. The ensuing fires would continue to destruction long after the Luftwaffe had long gone. And night after night, the bombing continued, the darkness, the blackout living, the sirens, and all that followed. And if you had been living in London in those days, you would have known powerlessness. There was nothing that you could do. They came night after night, inexorably, unstoppable, relentlessly. For 57 consecutive days, the bombers came. And then the 58th night, there was nothing. And what had seemed inexorable had ended, and there would still be bombings, but the blitz was over. As with all merely human endeavors, the end had come. And when we are in the midst of such things, they feel as though they will go on forever. And we talk about them as if they are inexorable, that they will keep coming and keep coming over and over again. And it's good in some ways, I think, that we know such things or that we can at least read about them so that we can kind of get a feel of the inexorable, the unstoppable, and what it's really like. Yet there's only one thing in all of the world which is truly inexorable, and it's not of human origins, though people have a part in it. The plans were laid in eternity before our world began. In the garden, when our first parents sinned, death came, and a long detour began. But God continued to march. And then in another garden, in Gethsemane, the Savior struggled. He took the cup, he went to the cross, he paid for the sins of the world, and was laid in a garden tomb from which he rose from the dead. And one day he will come again, and make the whole world a garden, and God will reign. There is nothing which can stop his coming. Even now he approaches. To be on the wrong side of his coming will be truly terrible. For the lost, it will be the beginning of unending misery. For the believer, we'll finally be at home, and we will rejoice at his coming. God is coming. It's inexorable. It's un stoppable and he is relentless as he makes his way here and yet that boom is so big and large and sweeping that it's sometimes difficult for us to see it's kind of like standing too close to a tall building when you look up you really can't see the top it just seems to disappear from your sight but there are smaller expressions of God's inexorable approach which we can see and maybe better appreciate.
where we can see God's work close up and get a glimpse of his forward march as he accomplishes his purposes in spite of what might seem to stand in the way. And we're going to look at one of those places this morning. It's found in the book of Philippians. So we're spending our summer making our way through this book, and I want to invite you to join me there once again, the book of Philippians chapter 1, where we'll be looking at verses 12 through 18. Of course, we'll have the text up on the screen on either side of me. At least we will this week. We tried to last week, but we had some problems. Anyway, um, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Paul is in prison, and his friends at Philippi had heard as much, and we gather that from other parts of the letter, as well as the inference that we see right here in this text. Paul is explaining what all of this means. In verse 12, Paul's tone continues to be warm, reflecting his close relationship to the Philippian church when he tells them, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, we might suppose, we might imagine that some people were wondering, since Paul was in prison, if he'd really done something wrong and deserved to be there. Or, or others may have been wondering why God would allow that to happen if Paul maybe was being disciplined by God, and that's why he was in prison. And while that uh, might be understandable and even expected reaction in most cases, I don't really think that was true of this church. You see, their own history with Paul tells against it. Paul had been arrested, accused and arrested while he was in Philippi, not for doing anything at all wrong, but simply for proclaiming the truth. And you remember the story, the Philippian jailer and his family came to faith while Paul was in prison. And we don't know how many others followed in their footsteps while those who already had uh, come to faith already were believers. They saw the injustice of what had happened to Paul. They already had some experience with the way the legal system worked in some cases like that. And what Paul told them was his imprisonment actually served to advance the gospel. Now, I know I've told you about my uh, friend and man that I look up to so much, Sam Gertz, who, as a young man, wanted to go and did indeed go to the mission field. He had dreamed of it for a long, long time. And he finally got there, and on the mission field, he met Flossie, the love of his life. And after pursuing her for a while, he finally convinced her to marry him. They had some children. And then an unexpected thing happened. Sam had a kind of a nervous breakdown, and he had to leave the mission field. He came home heartbroken, and he began working as a security guard so he could provide for the needs of his family. And then while he was working, he became sick. And he couldn't even provide for their needs any longer. He ended up in the hospital. But you know, Sam never really lost sight of the fact that God was great. And that God still was somehow in control of all of this. And while he was in the hospital, he led person after person to Christ right there in that hospital. And, and his children at that time in their life needed their father in the worst way. And he was right there with them in all that they were going through. And while he was there, he got out of the hospital, and their little 
country church on its last legs and needed a pastor. Sam went and became the pastor of that church, and, and that church thrived and survived. And 30 years later, that church sat on my ordination council when I was ordained as a pastor. Sam understood that God was in control. There was nothing that could stop what he was doing in his life. He went back eventually to the mission field, and for 40 years he served in Ghana and Nigeria. The gospel never stopped. Even when Sam was off the field, even when he was in the hospital, even when his children needed him, it never stopped. It continued to advance even though even through Sam's darkest hours. The Philippians understood something about that. They weren't concerned so much that Paul had somehow let them down by being in prison, but they were concerned about him as a man. He was their friend, and he had led them to Christ. We discover later in the in the letter that they had sent Epaphroditus to help Paul and care for his needs while he was in jail. And it was really a wonderful expression of their love, and Paul really appreciated it. But, but Paul wanted to turn their focus away from himself so they could see what God was doing. His imprisonment was bad enough for him, it was true, but the, the real story was what God was doing in advancing his kingdom through it all. Whatever things were going on, they don't hinder God's gospel. Indeed, through it all, God is still marching, and we can go with him if we will, no matter what our circumstances. Paul wants to be sure that they know what his imprisonment really meant, that it served to advance the gospel. And far from hindering it, Paul's imprisonment actually became a good thing. It, uh, it really did advance it, and he did so in at least two ways that he tells the Philippian church. And the first one is found in verse 13. Paul tells us, everyone came to know the truth of his situation. And so we read there, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. See, the first reason this had been the good thing rather than some kind of a bad thing is because everyone understood why Paul was there. Paul was in chains for Christ. And and it was, he was there not because of some bad or evil thing that he had done. Everyone knew Paul didn't deserve to be there, and that mattered. You know, you know something like that, I think, happened in, in our own nation during the Civil Rights Movement. You know, people who had absolutely nothing to gain personally saw the injustice of what was going on in our country, and they stood against it people from all walks of life, from different political and philosophical positions, join together to fight against that monstrous injustice. Some of them even died for the cause. The same thing happened in England a long, long time before that, when Wilberforce stood his ground against the evils of slavery and lived to see it come to an end in spite of all the delays and detours. You know, people often rally around the good. They see injustice, and they, they often want to take a stand against it. And that's what's happening here. Paul, in his, in his statement, names one specific group above others who understood this truth: the palace guard. 
uh, the entire guard knew what the truth was about Paul. And they were all Gentiles. They were soldiers. They were set the task to guard prisoners. And they had other prisoners to guard. But Paul was different. They, they knew that he was not guilty of any wrongdoing. And Paul witnessed to them. He lived out his faith before them as he'd done in the jail in Philippi. And many became believers. We see that in chapter 4 and verse 22 when he says, All God's people here send you their greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. In the text we've looked at, he's named specifically the palace guard. Here he names the whole household. Others came to faith through Paul's ministry as he was in prison. Not just the guards. I mean, Caesar's household was large and not just soldiers served. Those prison guards, though, well, they were the first people Paul was in contact with, and he was in the closest contact with them, and the most frequent. Many of them came to know Jesus Christ. And the gospel advanced, and others came to know Christ too. Long before Paul was born, God began to march through history. And Paul's life was caught up in that. And the things that happened to him were not out of God's control. Paul continued to see God's hand at work in his life. People saw the real reason he was in prison. And it really made a difference in his life, in their life. A difference that would not have happened if Paul had not been unjustly imprisoned. So I'm going to tell you that the circumstances that we go through and how we face them can make all the difference in the lives of other people. Just as Paul's life made a difference in Caesar's own household. Now there was another reason that the gospel was advancing as a result of Paul's imprisonment. And that is other believers began to be bolder in sharing their faith. So in verse 14 we read this. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The second reason Paul's imprisonment worked for the good of the gospel is because of the effect it had on other believers. You know, a good example can go an awfully long way. There's a movie I like. It's a feel-good movie. You've probably seen it. It's Rudy, you know. Rudy wasn't really college material, if you know that movie. Uh, but he decided he wanted to go. He wanted to go to Notre Dame. That was the college. His father loved Notre Dame, Notre Dame football couldn't get in so he had to go to community college first and he worked and he worked and finally they let him get into the college right and then he wanted to play football but Rudy was too little but uh, the coach of that school Parisian I think he was allowed walk-ons to try out for the team and Rudy walked on and he couldn't make the team but he made the the practice team these were the guys that instead of dummies they hit real people right and Rooney just ate it up, and he, and he worked hard. And it didn't matter how many times they hit him, he got back up, and he kept on, and he just kept going. And, you know, his example not only inspires us in the movie, it inspired other people on the team. Not everyone. There was, a, there was one person on there that didn't like it, at least according to the movie, and he lost his position on the team because Rudy's good attitude in his heart showed that other man for what he is. Something like that happens here with Paul too as we're going to see 
But that good example makes a difference. And Paul's example made all the difference in the lives of those people where he was imprisoned. They saw what happened to Paul. They, they knew he could do it. The believers were looking, and they saw, and they, they, they saw what Paul did, and Paul showed them the way. They saw people coming to Christ, and even though Paul was in chains, they knew that the gospel was not. They also knew that it's the way that Christ went. They knew he was commanded to deny himself and take up the cross and follow him, and Paul was a living example of that, and it inspired them to do the same. You know, there may have been things to have been afraid of. They may have known they could have ended up in prison. They certainly would have known people would reject, at least some people would reject the message and even persecute them. It didn't matter, though. They'd seen Paul. They saw what he was willing to endure. They had an example, and it inspired them. Do you know, you don't have to be in prison to be an example. You live your life. You can inspire them to live their life for Christ too. And I don't want you to lose sight of what's happening here. We need to be clear. Paul was clear. It's not that people were simply busy fighting the system. They weren't fighting injustice. They weren't trying to, to set Paul free. I mean, those things may have been going on to some degrees, but what was really happening, what Paul wanted them to understand was that the gospel was being proclaimed. Not not everyone was encouraged, but most of the other believers were. And those that weren't, well, well, now they had not only Paul's example, but they had the example of the palace guard and their friends and neighbors and fellow church members. And, and it's a hope that eventually they too were encouraged to do likewise. God's work in the world is like that. There's nothing can stop it. It just keeps going. It just keeps growing. Paul was in prison. Didn't hinder it. Everyone knew the real reason he was there. Other Christians were emboldened to do even more in sharing their faith. God's work in the world just kept right on going. But not everything. We've already hinted at that, and in verse 15, Paul adds a kind of a qualifier. He says this, It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So Paul's telling us here that everything's not good. Uh, good things are coming from this, yes, but there's some bad things going on too. Good, good people are preaching Christ out of goodwill, but others they're doing, but whatever it is that they're doing, they're doing it out of envy and rivalry. And before we look at that second group, I'd like to look a little closer at those who were emboldened to proclaim Christ uh, out of good motives. We're going to be really brief with this, but he says two things about them. Verse 16, he says, the latter, we're going to call them the good guys, the ones preaching out of a good will. Well, they do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul tells us two things about them. They're proclaiming Christ out of love. And they know Paul's in prison for the defense of the gospel. You see, they love Paul, and they love other believers, and they love God, and they love even the lost, and even those who would persecute him. And it was a love of God which constrained them. And they knew he was in prison for the defense of the gospel. Paul understood. 
He understood that even though there's a sense where he was the focal point, the attack was really not an attack on him, but it was an attack on the good news of Jesus Christ. And to stand for it, it meant he had to endure whatever came his way, and in this case, it meant imprisonment. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to endure whatever comes our way, then the gospel will not go forth, at least not through us. God will find another way to do it, but we won't have a part in it. And our church will be defeated. Then there's some evidence that that's what happened in Japan in the early days. We, we know there's, there's bits and pieces that we put together from different history sources and church traditions that one of the apostles, and I believe it was Thomas, um, made his way all the way to Japan. And, and the Christianity took root and began to flourish in Japan. And, and after a time, people began to do, as they're doing in our world today, they began to persecute Christians. And something happened that was unusual in Christian circles. The Christians began to be quiet. And then they became secret Christians. And when that last secret Christian died out, faith was gone. It's back again. Missionaries taking the good news to Japan and have for a long time wasn't God's intention. But what we do matters. And God may have to come around a different way, but he never stops marching. But we had to walk with him. We're part of this whole process. You understand he didn't give charge to the angels in heaven to share the gospel. He gave it to you and I. Every day, ordinary people need to, to get Get in line with God. To follow him. To share the gospel with other people. And when we follow Christ, if we really follow him, we'll really love him. And in one other way, one way or the other, we'll defend the gospel and we'll help advance it in our world. But what about this other group here? What about this other group that were preaching, preaching the uh, gospel out of envy and rivalry? What does Paul tell us about them? Well, Paul really tells us five things about them, and we're going to look at each of those briefly. And we saw two of them already in verse 15. They, what they were doing, they were doing out of envy, which means they were jealous over Paul's success. People were coming to Christ through Paul's ministry, and, and maybe they wished they were having a similar kind of success with whatever it was that they were proclaiming. And they were doing it out of rivalry. It means that they felt that they were opponents to Paul instead of on his team. And then Paul adds his description of his opponents in verse 17. He tells us three more things about their motives. He says, the former, there's a bad guys here, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. And so what they were doing was out of selfish ambition. They were promoting themselves, even before the message, whatever that message might have been. And they weren't sincere there was a falseness about what they were doing. Their motives weren't pure, and that may be the other side of, of doing something out of selfishness, but, but it bears mentioning anyway that it wasn't pure because it's in contrast with the purity of the gospel and its effects on the lives of Christians. And, and maybe it might tell us something else about these people that we'll see in just a little bit. The last thing was they thought 
they could, um, well, what they were doing could cause problems for Paul while he was in jail. It's, it's already in a bad situation. It's like they were kicking a man when he was down. Maybe, uh, maybe they were using the imprisonment as a reason to attack him. Now, what I just said, those five motives, every one of those could be attributed to real believers. Pastors, evangelists, missionaries, and every other believer could be susceptible to any one of those things. Uh, We can, especially pastors and I think others, uh, we can be ambitious. We can prefer ourselves. We we can dream of becoming a pastor of a megachurch. Or maybe we think that we ought to be the next Billy Graham. Or any of us could think, our church is uh, better than your church. Maybe we're not always sincere. Maybe we, uh, we're simply living in sin. Or maybe we're just going through the motions. Maybe we envy others in other churches and their successes. We may even have a spirit of rivalry, thinking and acting as though we were in competition. How many times have we seen that in our lives, the lives of others? it's possible that we could be guilty of all of these things. We could be guilty of pointing out perceived failures in other believers. But it's also possible, and I put this out there as a possibility, that Paul means something a little different. See, I think he's telling us there were people in in Philippi that were talking against the faith who weren't really Christians at all. And I think it... uh, at least the possibility, because if they were really Christians, I think Paul would have uh, called them out on it, but he doesn't. He, in the silence, I think there's telling. See, I think they were ridiculing the faith. I think they were ridiculing the resurrection and the incarnation. They, they were probably offended by the preaching of the cross and what seemed to them to be mere foolishness. They were seeking in their own way to establish their own righteousness while they rejected the righteousness that comes by faith. Their method would have been that of mockery. Oh, you know, as Christians, God became a man. And then, get this, he was killed. But no fear, they have an answer for that too. He was raised again from the dead. And let me tell you something else they say. We're all evil. We, we can't get it right. We need to get saved. You know, it's really easy for me to imagine that kind of thing happening and to hear the contempt as those people are saying those things. I have to tell you, whatever the case, whether it was really other believers who had it in for Paul for some reason, or or people who were mocking the truth, whatever was happening, even if it was mockery, they were talking about the incarnation and the resurrection and salvation by faith, which brings us to what Paul says next in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. The rhetorical question, what does it matter? The implication is their attacks don't change a thing. It does not affect the truth. It does not affect the progress of the gospel. It doesn't even affect Paul's imprisonment because people he came in contact with seem to already know better. He tells us the important thing is that Christ is preached from both good motives and bad motives. The good news goes out. People 
No, those who are sincere and those who aren't. But each of them is telling the facts of the gospel, and those facts have power. Now, just as Satan and the religious leaders in Rome accomplished God's purposes when they crucified Christ, so these opponents of the gospel, through their ridicule or even their mad motives, still advance God's purposes in our He created this world. And he began to make his way to the end. And our parents sinned. And there was this kind of detour that happened, but God never stopped. In our day, he continues to march. There's nothing in all the world that can stop what he's doing. We can give up. We can turn our back on him. We can cause a hiccup in the plans, but God will continue. You know, in church, what do we do? We build up believers. And outside the church, we call people to faith. And in our own personal lives, we try to live it out. That's everything. (laughs) Kind of in a nutshell of what you and I are about. And God is at work. My good friend who led me to Christ, George, had a few sayings written in the covers of his Bible. One of them he had written there says that um, there are things that will come into your life that God either puts there or allows to come there. And they are rocks. And they are either stumbling blocks or stepping stones. And what you choose, what you choose to do with them makes them what they are. So what is it that's getting in your way? Is it going to be a stumbling stone or a stepping stone? choice is yours. But I know and Paul knew and the Philippians knew and you know where God is going. And he wants you to join him in that march. Would you pray with me please? Father we thank you for your word. Once again we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you uh, that you are at work in this world. And, Lord, I know um, we understand that there is a duty that we have. But I pray for your grace. I pray that you would help us to see beyond just the duty to realize the tremendous 
privilege you give us is we can share the gospel and make a difference in someone's life forever. Help us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand, worship one more time. Thanks again for coming to worship at Y Bible. Have a great week.